This is the Life in the Front Office podcast. I want to first thank all of our listeners to making this a success and helping us continue to grow. We bring on sports executives and professionals from around the industry, all different aspects of the industry, to provide insights and advice for those who are trying to enter the sports industry or those who are already in the industry just looking to learn something new and continue to get better. If you like our episode, please rate us on Apple Podcasts, leave a review, and visit our website at lifeinthefrontoffice.com for more episodes. Welcome to today's episode on Life in the Front Office. I'm your host, Jay Kirschman, and today I've got my co-host, Andy Dolich, with me. And for the first time on Life in the Front Office, we've got our guest back. Uh, Tom Fox, president of the San Jose Earthquakes, is back with us for a second episode. Really excited to talk to him today uh, about his experiences. We'll expand on the episode we did back in late May of 2019. And uh, then we'll dive into Andy's favorite topic of LOL. And you're probably thinking, why are we talking about laughing out loud? We aren't. We're going to be talking about loss of logo. So with that said, Tom, welcome to the podcast. Hey, glad to be here, Jake. Am I really the first uh, returning guest? That's that's quite an you honor. Are. I'm, well, I, I I wear the badge with pride. Thanks for having me. The listener response, um, and I, I won't say listeners, but the listener response was so significant. <laughs> we decided. I taught my mom. I taught my mom how to click early and often. She's from Chicago. Which, which is how we vote early and often. I will tell you <laughs> absolutely factually, I was with another one of our guests on the phone yesterday, Mr. Bill Schlau from oh, the yeah. San Francisco Giants. Yeah. And Bill is a listener of pretty much everyone we've done, major part <laughs> of uh, what we've done here. And yeah, he, yeah, he's pretty good himself. Yes, he, he is. He's a good man. So, uh, Jake, why don't you jump in first with Tom, and, and then I can remain moot or mute, however we choose to go. <laughs> well, Andy, I will say, uh, to Tom's point about being the first second uh, guest, uh, we've been doing this about a year now. So we've passed our year anniversary. We have successfully, uh, all thanks to all of our listeners, uh, kept going. And we're looking forward to many, many more episodes. Tom, you're probably going to end up on a third time. There's okay. A I'm happy so, to do it. Happy to do it. Uh, but let's, let's kick off today's episode with talking about your experience in the industry of not only sports, but within brands. And mm-hmm. it, brands are one of those things where a lot of people see them as the entertainment, the commercial, the retail, the, they don't consider them to be sports, but uh, in your case, working for Gatorade and being involved in the, in the sports landscape, having some experience at Nike, et cetera, uh, talk a little bit about your experiences on the brand side and how they truly have helped you as you transitioned into, quote unquote, the sports front office uh, and what you learned from from those experiences. Yeah, I mean, I've, it, all the experiences have been have been so, so different. I, I think I mentioned last time I started my career on on brand. Um, Captain Crunch cereal, and I, you know, I don't think there's any greater example of brand than really maybe Captain Crunch and Gatorade for similar reasons. Captain Crunch is 
um, sort of sugar and corn based product extruded in a really strange shape, uh, which if you eat it late at night, rips the roof of your mouth to shreds. Um, it's exactly <laughs> the same formula that is in, at the time, several other Quaker products. Andy, you probably are old enough to remember Quisp and Quake growing up. Oh, absolutely. And Jake, uh, you know that I love the English language. So I don't know how many times on any other podcast you're going to hear the word extruded. <laughs> so, it's quite, it's, it's, it's literally, it's, it's, watching, it's a good one. Watching Cap'n Crunch being made is like watching a, your, your own little Play-Doh machine pumping out of a little hole in a, in a specific shape. But, but it's, it's basically the same formula uh, in a different shape built around the concept of this character, Cap'n Crunch, uh, and you create this whole persona around the product, which really doesn't taste that much different than other products, either private label or other products that Quaker was making at the time. Gatorade is fundamentally sugar, water, and salt, um, but it's create, it, it, they're mixed in a certain proportion, which, uh, which gives it a lot of functionality within a sporting context for rehydration and performance. And so those are both two great examples of very simple concepts that get turned into much larger ideas because they're telling a story, right? In the case of the captain, he had a full backstory and uh, the, uh, the illustrator of the original captain was the same illustrator for the Rocky and Bullwinkle cartoons with Jake. Oh my. Oh, all right. That's, that's my favorite movie. Okay. So, well, no, but you got to go back to the original TV shows. Oh, yeah. Movie. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, what, exactly. <laughs> movie, movie was my childhood. This no. is black white TV. Boris, Natasha, Bullwinkle, Rocky. Come on. Absolutely. And then you had the whole um, Sherman and Peabody episode that would show up there. But we, we could go off on, on old shows all day long. But th there was a backstory there. And the, the cartoonist was, you know, a cartoonist of a, a popular kids show. So th they, they were able to create that brand because they captured cartoons and what was happening. And they got kids excited about it. And they woke up and wanted to eat sugar. And their parents were more than happy to oblige. You know, <clears throat> Gatorade was created by uh, uh, endocrinologists at the University of Florida who wondered why these big 260, 300 pound guys weren't having to pee, even though they were drinking a lot of water, what was happening, what was hydration all about, why were some of them cramping? And they built a story around becoming a second half team. In fact, it was a, it was a, a concept and a narrative that we brought back to life when I was on the brand with Keith Jackson. We did a series of ads called Origins. And the first one was the reporter talking about how the Gators became a second half team in that year in the 60s. I saw it with my own two eyes. And you had, you know, Steve Spurrier, who was the quarterback on the team. And the story was all the other teams were fading and these guys weren't. And the, the reason they weren't is because these guys were drinking water, sugar, potassium, and sodium. Just so happens in a, in a combination and in a formula that made it highly effective. And so early on in my career, you, understanding very, very simple concepts can be turned into very big businesses and big ideas. But you have to have a story. And you have to have some type of narrative that people, when they hear it, are nodding. And, you know, I've heard brands described as, as promises that you make. And for various categories, that's absolutely true. In, in, in my experience, you know, those brands are stories that resonate. And they are then promises that are made. I know that if you take a bottle of Gatorade home and you get it cold, when you're hot and sweaty and you're doing something incredibly active, I know that when you open that bottle, nothing's going to taste better. That was the promise, and we delivered on it. But the backstory was what made it, what made it interesting. So, how do you transition that into 
into a sports team, you know, what I'll tell you is it's very interesting what we're trying to do right now at the San Jose Earthquakes, because the story to date for the earthquakes largely has been our history. We we were one of the original NASL teams in 1974. We were one of the original MLS teams in 1996, although that team ended up moving to Houston in 05, coming back uh, as the quakes in 08. But our story has been one of longevity and history and being a part of the work ethic that is San Jose. But the, the problem with that is that that's not a really compelling brand story uh, in this market, especially when we really haven't been able to crack the code until I think until recently on putting a product out there that actually gets the fan base excited and delivers a promise, which is, you know, if you pour your passion and your heart and soul into something, we will reward you with effort, exciting soccer and, and a business plan and a, and a, and a, a marketing plan that looks like we're committed to doing it every single year. Right. We were, it was fairly episodic over the years. We had a great year in 2012, but it was preceded by, you know, uh, four years of, of really not so good soccer and followed by, you know, uh, another four years, five years of not so great soccer. We're, we're actually trying to change fundamentally the narrative. So around the backstory of history uh, of soccer in this area, the star players that have come through, we're trying to add to that, um, that, that promise to, and, and a broader narrative, which is we have ambition. We actually understand what it takes to succeed in this league uh, in its 2.0 um, uh, formulation. And, you know, we're putting a better product on the field. We have a coach that is iconic and that's connecting with our community and, and turning our players into better players. And so to me, it's very much translatable to those early brand experiences I had trying to understand how do you take a, an organization like the Earthquakes and really fully developed what it means to, for the Earthquakes brand to be successful. No, that's, that's a great example. And I, I think it's so interesting. And Andy, you can chime in on this as well. There's so many uh, instances in, in which sports, yet they're different, they're the same. You can take examples from one sport to another. And, and whether that's, you know, baseball to golf or basketball to football, for the most part, the fundamentals are the same, to your point, you know, with the storytelling, et cetera. Are there other examples that you can think of uh, as you've gone throughout your career that might exemplify that? You know, it, there's one, to me, there's one difference. I think soccer does operate slightly differently. And maybe it's because my first experience with the game was, you know, in a country in England where it's so incredibly tribal and so unbelievably relevant and has very little competition from other sports, unlike here. Um, we we kind of boiled down uh, what we were trying to do at Arsenal into pride and belonging. But those were the two businesses we were fundamentally in. It had nothing to do with tickets. It had nothing to do with content or any of that. We were in the pride and belonging business. And how do you make people who choose to wear the badge as a, a representation of their own personal identity, how do you make them proud of that association? And And how do you make them feel, even when they don't live in North London and can attend a game, uh, if they might be sitting in, in Jakarta or, you know, or Shenzhen, how do you make them feel as if they belong to what's happening at the club? There's something that happens every match day. Those people get together and something very tribal uh, and very passionate happens. Boy, if you could make people around the world feel that without having to be there, um, that, that would be uh, an incredible, uh, an incredibly powerful brand. So that, that's how we boiled it down. I'm not sure Maybe that's the same with, with other sports, but I think, you know, certainly with teams in, in English football, 
if you could get those two things right, you, you, were, you were in much better shape. Jake, you just listened to a master, and you might not have picked this up, but we were talking about Captain Crunch. I'll get back to that for a second. But in a period of two minutes, just like Sesame Street is one of the most brilliant uh, TV shows of all time, the man, today's letter is E, right? <laughs> e, right? We have extruded. We have endurance. We had um, two other E words, uh, we, and we didn't even have eviscerated, that were put into his answer, which was absolutely brilliant. And well, I'm, I, I'm erudite, that's why. See, there's five, <laughs> five that went in there. And I do have one question about Captain Crunch, right? C-A-P apostrophe A. Absolutely, you got it. Okay, so in today's world, would someone from, someone erudite who teaches young people, did you ever have anybody come at you saying, it should be Captain <laughs> it should be spelled out properly. Did, did that yeah. ever happen? No, you know, because the backstory was sort of playing on the whole cartoon craze, right? Keep in mind, you know, television, Captain Crunch was created probably in the 60s. Television was just coming into its own as a medium. And these Bullwinkle and Rocky cartoons were really popular back then. And I think as were all cartoons. And so it was the idea that, hey, let's build a brand and a concept for a serial around people's interest in cartoons. And they were always kind of playful and they weren't real. The drawing of the of the cap looked, you know, looked he was a strange looking sailor. Let's just put it that way. So the so the the the, the word captain was sort of tongue in cheek. It was part, it, quite frankly, it was part of the brand. It was part of the fun you were having. It was part of the fact that it was targeted at kids. It was fantasy that told the story that no one got hurt. You know, in video games today, and some of them, there's some entity that's killing 12 million aliens or, right. or advancing armies. And incidentally, it just popped into my mind. He also threw in the word endocrinologist. So we have... Right. We, we have words in this that are just <laughs> to ease for the rest of this. But that, that point about fantasy and fun, it to a certain extent, it's getting lost because mm -hmm. you're almost not allowed to be a kid anymore. Mm -hmm. Right. You need to be erudite and play on a traveling team by the time you're four. Right. And if if you don't have those, then life could be a problem. At the time you turn five. Yeah, it is. It, well, it is funny because, of course, when when we were growing up, you know, we were watching cartoons and TV shows that today would be, you know, probably politically incorrect. And people would be pointing at various things and saying that's not an accurate representation of this or that or the other and improper spelling. I, I can't imagine what what kids have to deal with now. Having said that, I, I'm not watching a lot of programming these days, so I really don't know what kids pre-sweetened serial television commercials look like it'd be interesting now that you've mentioned it i'm going to go back and 
and see how they've become, uh, how they've succumbed to the to the political correctness. Well, I'm, I'm a grandparent. You're not working on it yet because you're young. And Jake, when Tom <laughs> mentioned the '60s, that was the 1960s. Okay, not <laughs> correct. Correct. Talking about. Um, but having four grandchildren with one on the way, I do spend time with them. And we had talked about this before. It's no longer the age of cord cutters in terms of TV, like we grew up with cord that. Cord never, cord never. Exactly. And, and they're consuming everything on some sort of digital device mm -hmm. in many instances, which they're controlling. I mean, we didn't necessarily control any of our favorite comic strip or cartoon characters, I don't think. No. No. Andy, Andy, if you if you wanna if you wanna have someone at at a workplace look frazzled, you ask them if they'd rather give up their phone or Netflix. And they'd probably <laughs> stare at you and, and look at you with the blank stare. Am I well, right? Uh, absolutely correct. And if you want to see um, human nature gone crazy, um, go to a cable TV office on the day that bills are due and that somebody is about to be turned off, even with the digital capabilities. You will hear stories that you cannot comprehend. I will give you my two children. You can have them for a month or longer, but do not turn off my cable. Don't do that. Yeah. Um, so, so, Andy, Andy, now that we've gone down the cable cable route, um, would would love to get your thoughts on uh, the Gatorade. In that, uh, we've we've covered the Captain Crunch, but. Tom, as as Gatorade has become something that people, you know, they choose. It's like Pepsi or Coke, right? They choose Gatorade. They choose Powerade, one or the other. They choose your team. They choose the Sounders. They choose. How do how do you? And you and Andy can answer this both. But how do you guys see now as people are engaging in more content than ever, the fan loyalty aspect of things? How do you get them to? Um, engage with one team or one brand all the time when there's so many options? Look, you know, I think it's always been uh, difficult to create brand, brand, brand preference. You know, we'd, we'd had so many competitors. I want to say there were 20 or 30 competitors to Gatorade when I came back to the business in 1999. There was no shortage of people that were trying to make a product that was, was better. What we had was a series of marketing tactics there that um, continued to make a, a really compelling promise to people and that the product kept delivering on that promise whenever, whenever they were able to take it home and consume it in, in the right environment. I, I even go Nike, great, great example. I mean, the backstory for Nike um, with Bill Bowerman working uh, with Phil Knight to, to try to come up with a way to help athletes perform better and make, you know, runners better. That, that primary premise is what's driven you know, close to $30 billion company right now. And it's fairly simple. So how do you, in the face of, you know, the Fila's and the Reeboks and all of the different competitors, how do you, how do you continue to, to, um, to ensure that the brand that's preferred is yours? 
you've got to have a really good sense for who your consumer is and you've got to stick to your marketing principles and you've got to make sure that that promise you're making to them um, isn't broken. It's interesting because one of the examples of a brand that I, it's so interesting to me that, that people are looking at Apple right now and thinking, God, I really hate that they're changing the cord and I got to buy a new cord and it costs me 50 bucks to plug it in. You know, they're updating their technology. No, it's just, it's, it's, what's happening is they've created a platform that people are having trouble getting off of, but there's more, I think there's more discontent with the Apple brand, but part of their resilience as a business is that they've sort of got you on multiple platforms and multiple fronts, right? It's difficult to exit their brand and go into something else. Um, There there was, and so I, I, you know, my, 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 friend is is on her phone all the time she has like 150,000 photos on her phone she's had more problems with her current phone but there's nowhere else she can go and she doesn't get satisfaction on customer service and she doesn't um you know she a lot of the ways that the new phone operates are not working for her but but there's really nowhere else she can go and it's interesting to me because apple started as being so intuitive, so ergonomic, and so much in tune with what people wanted. They were giving you what you wanted before you even knew you needed it. And now I'm hearing more and more discontent, and yet their their business continues to grow. So I think there's multiple ways, Jake, to get to your question. How do you continue to ensure brand preference? You, you've got to have a really good marketing and a good business plan, and you've got but to Tom, understand what it's going to take to succeed. Tom, doesn't that also bring up the, the concept of the pedestal? In any business, sports, electronics, what have you, when you get to be a clear number one, it's almost like if there's any scratch, if there's any blemish, we're taking you down. It's sort of the subliminal view as if you're great, man, we can't wait uh, to make you less than great. Right now, when when there's a, a, a quality product, or in addiction, it's hard to walk away from it. But yeah. I've always thought that that is a growing problem. Even if you're terrific, there are people who go, oh, let's wait to see when they're less yeah. terrific and well, we're going to go after I think, I think there's definitely, I'm not going to get it. That's a much longer conversation about society yeah, yeah. in general. But I think you're 100% right <laughs> on that. But I think it's also a natural part of the marketing cycle. I, Andy, do you, did you ever meet Jeffrey Frost? He was a director no. of advertising for Nike and then went on to, to be the chief no. marketing officer at Motorola. He was a, a friend, unfortunately passed away. Um, God, it's, I think it's close to 10 years ago now, but I used to listen to him speak about brands that were in the lead and it was absolutely fascinating. He got up in front of a group in Chicago and said, you know, do you remember who the first company was that created a portable music device? Yeah, it was Sony. It was the Sony Walkman. Well, he's delivering this speech when everybody in the room is buying this new cool thing called the iPod, right? To put their, right. their music on. It's not a cassette tape. It's, it's, you know, it's massive amounts on this thing. He said, but the first person, the first company to create it was Sony. Where are they now? Nowhere. Um, he, exactly. said, he said, what was the first company to create a, a mobile two-way paging device that allowed you to communicate? He said it was Motorola. Where are they now? Nowhere. BlackBerry at the time was absolutely dominating. So you get, it's, it's part of a natural kind of marketing cycle, you get to the top. I, my best example is Starbucks. When Starbucks came out, it was, my God, I've never had a cup of coffee like this. This is great. They're bringing the European you know, coffee experience to the US and these lattes and all these things are great. Now Starbucks is the McDonald's of that experience. Mm-hmm. And into the space come all of these other challengers 
that have points of difference that are meeting the needs of different consumer segments. So the, the most difficult thing to do is to get on top and stay on top. And I'm just absolutely in awe of Apple because they're doing it while their most loyal fans are, are starting to chafe and complain, but they're, they're going to maintain their yeah. dominance because they, they've, they've got me on their platform. They've got other people. So, and it's, it's another marketing advantage that they have. So going uh, back to ground level here, we've theorized and we've talked about sort of the global world. Um, you're in one of the most competitive markets in the United States for life, a share of lifestyle, share mm-hmm. of sports mind, <laughs> share of time, share of money, which we got a lot of here. That's probably mm-hmm. the least worrisome. How, as you've begun to turn the quakes around and become much more competitive, you still have a tidal wave of competition. How do you generally view that? You've been in a lot of markets and you've sold and marketed and positioned a number of products. Uh, the, the, the easy answer is we don't have the answer to that yet, because in addition to all of the things that Andy just described and all the different dynamics uh, of this marketplace, we also have maybe one of the most unique and challenging geographies, uh, I think, in, in American sport. It is both a market that is big, maybe too big, because it encompasses San Francisco, Oakland, South Bay, and both the East Bay and the peninsulas in between, and both both uh, uh, the peninsula and the east bay are a series of micro climates and micro towns that have their own identity right so it's very complicated so in some ways it's big but it might be too big in other ways because we sit in the south part of the bay in san jose which is the smallest of the three big cities that surround the bay and probably has the least um, singular identity as a as a as a city brand our market might be perceived as as too small so um, add that dynamic to the other dynamics that Andy described. And the answer is we don't really have the answer yet. <clears throat> what we know is that uh, we need to find some relevancy in the market. We need people talking about our brand first before they'll start participating in it. We have a good, loyal, hardcore of, of people who are up and down the peninsula, some even as far as Oakland and San Francisco, although that's rare, mostly in the South Bay. We have a good, loyal core of people that are big soccer fans and are appreciative of what's going on and love what's happening with the team. We've also got a group of people who love our stadium, who love the stadium environment, who believe it's a great place to spend an afternoon out with their family. Uh, And the question for us from a marketing perspective is how do we gain a greater relevance with a larger part of our audience here? And what I was saying, Andy, I think you're you're back on now is we don't have the, the marketing answer. What we know though, is that unless we put a product on the field, that is compelling, that gets people talking. We really have no story and no narrative to tell because it's not compelling to anybody who's 25 to 31 years old that we've been here since 1974. They don't care. And what's compelling right. is we've got good players. Uh, we're, you know, we're top two in the league in shots. We've got one of the most offensively oriented s- schemes. Uh, we're fun to watch. We've got a superstar coach. All these things are much more interesting. And, and in combination with some success, we'll get more people talking about us and create that relevance. Exactly. And our job is, our, the our winning, job is to the winning yeah. market. If you, you can't just be there, you better no. win. You better win with style. 
and you better win with players that people automatically identify with. And when you start winning, you then have an opportunity while people are talking about you to begin to build your business around that. So our, our big question right now is what are we going to do in the offseason? What's our messaging going to be prior to the start of next season? Because we've done things very differently this year on the field, and we are one of the most talked about teams for a variety of reasons in the league. How we take that opportunity that we've now created because of the moves we've made and start that momentum spinning even faster, that's what we're going to be trying to solve from the day the season ends until it starts uh, in 2020. Have you, this may be, you know, in some people's minds, you know, a, a bit of a difficult uh, question, but if you just look at the massive success that women's soccer has had in the United States and, and we're it um, and the players that we have that have become dynamic superstars in their, in their realm outside of just soccer, how right. do you look at that market, especially, again, uh, it could be anywhere from coast to coast, but we have a very, very strong youth soccer market in Northern California. Um, how, how do you speak to them? Because you have so many um, young women who are into this. We've got great soccer at high school, youth and college. Um, how do you look at that as, as a market? Yeah, it's it, quite frankly, it's it's a challenge, right? As you know, we've had two prior teams in San Jose in the two previous iterations of professional women's leagues, and neither one of them has been successful. Now, the current NWSL has been around, I think, longer than either of them. And, and, you know, because of the backing of U.S. soccer, because of the added role that it plays in funding the national team players and keeping them, uh, <coughs> excuse me, fit and active at a high level in between you know, their national team commitments, I think it's got a much greater chance for success. Look, we, we sit in a market here where you've got Jerry Smith, you know, a mile away at Santa Clara with one of the most successful women's programs of all time. You've got right. Stanford, you've got Stanford up the road, but when those two teams play each other, <clears throat> excuse me, you might, you might have, you know, five or 6,000 people. I, I it, it is a mystery to me why we can't find a way to build bigger businesses around the interest in the women's game because it is exciting and there seems to be interest when, when they play for the red, white, and blue. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we have got a great Academy program with our young girls. They actually won. Uh, they're the national champions in the under 15 age group. We're really proud of that. The top player of the year, the Gatorade high school national soccer player of the year, Sophie Jones uh, came out of our Academy is going to Duke next year. Um, you know, we love hosting the women's national team. We've hosted them four times here. Right. And aren't we, having the, aren't we having the College Cup here in the next year, I think? In, in December. Yeah. yeah we've got right. the College so, Cup boom. here in, yeah. in 19 and 21. We're hosting the College right. Cup. So we love it. Um, you know, there's, a, there's, there's two issues, which, which you know, I, I continually talk to my, my female friends, some of the 99ers from, from that team that won the, the gold medal and other, other uh, women in sports who I really respect. You know, if you have a stadium like Avaya Stadium, which holds 18,000 people, and you put 5,000 people into it, is, is that a good experience? I would argue no. Well, if you put 7,000 people into it, maybe, I, but, I, but I don't know. And then the second thing is in a market like San Jose, which is so unbelievably expensive, if you look at the salary structure of the current NWSL, yeah. you know, I'm not sure you could live – 
um, in, in our market right. for, 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 I think it's what, 40 uh, average 45 yeah, K a yeah, year. So, yeah. yeah. You, you like can't that. afford to live in this market at 44 K no, a year. No. And so, you know, if you created an opportunity, but you're employing, you know, the, the stars at a level that's sort of unsustainable, are you creating an even a different set of set of issues there? So until we're convinced we can understand and, and solve all those issues in this market, at least it's a really, it's, a, yeah. it's a and nobody problem. really has. I mean, um, it's been super interesting talking about the brands and, and, you know, kind of the different perspectives and how, how they pertain to sports. I do want to switch gears a little bit sure. and almost as almost a spinoff of brands in that, you know, throughout your career, you can consider uh, you've worked for a team, you've worked for uh, different brands, et cetera. And, and in theory, you would associate yourself with those teams or brands or logos, right? Right. Uh, throughout your career. How has your perception of who you work for and uh, what you do changed? over time as maybe the logo or the brand doesn't mean as much, or maybe it means more as you've moved on throughout your career. Wow. That's interesting. Um, that's, that's a really interesting question. You know what? Uh, we used to talk about how when people uh, got older, they aged out of the Gatorade business because, you know, do I really, I, do I really need the sugar at age 56 in a drink? like I, like I was able to handle it when I was younger. Um, you know, I, I think I'll always have a great affinity to the brands that I've, I've worked and had experiences with. Having said that, you know, I, I worked at Nike and I, I can remember telling Rick Welts as we walked around the Nike campus, when I worked for the NBA, I said, Rick, you should never let anybody from the NBA come here because this place is fantastic and I'm going to work here one day. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I've subsequently had a, you know, a working relationship with Puma when I was at, uh, at Arsenal. I worked with Under Armour when I was at Villa, and they were both incredibly important partners for us. And now maybe the most important partner of Major League Soccer is Adidas. So <clears throat> I, still have a, I still have an affinity and a different perspective because I, you know, I know people at those companies uh, still where I worked, and I have different levels of experience there. But, you know, um, and, and maybe I always will, right? That regardless of, of who I'm working with at the present time, there'll always be something special about those, those, those clubs and those leagues that I worked with first and the brands that were associated with them. I was actually here, but I was running to the kitchen because I worked out before this podcast. And I was you were going to get Gatorade? Gatorade um, <laughs> in between all of this. So if that's not the perfect... And do you have an E that we can end this with? Is there an E that we can? And end end is the end. It oh, end end has two E's in it. I end has two E's in it. Well, now that we know Andy can spell, uh, <laughs> let's let's uh, let's wrap up this episode with kind of one last one last question, and that. Tom, as, as you've uh, been able to reflect, I'm sure, on, on some of your experiences and currently what you're doing now, um, what's been your favorite experience from a brand perspective and what can we all who are listening learn from it? Oh, that is a really difficult question. Um, I was talking to a guy yesterday, Kent Fob, who was the head athletic trainer with the Detroit Lions for over 30 years. And he was telling me how he and his wife, Maxine, have been traveling a lot since retirement. I said, oh, he said, yeah, we've been overseas. I said, what's your favorite place? He's like, I can't answer that. 
every place we go, it's different. It's fantastic. It's exciting. Um, look, I, I, I've been lucky, Jake, in that I've worked for some really, really great brands. Um, you know, the Earthquakes are maybe the first challenger brand I've worked for, and I've enjoyed this experience uh, tremendously. So I, it's, it's difficult to say. I guess the most exciting thing for me, though, is being in a context and understanding that a lot of what we do and associate with every day are, are fundamentally brands. They're, you know, they're, uh, they're, they're products or services or, you know, um, or, or things that we're doing that have a collection of benefits and a collection of attributes about them. And, and so being very brand conscious and understanding that there's, there's purpose behind what everybody is doing out there and trying to understand how certain brands are getting it right and getting it wrong is just, to me, is a, a fascinating thing to, to have been a part of in my career and continue to be a part of. I don't have a favorite one. I think everyone's presented different sets of challenges. We've had different successes at, at each of the different brands. And, and uh, I'm just glad I'm in a world where, you know, where I can spend time thinking about brands and thinking about the consumer and thinking about how to differentiate them. Cause I, that, that's a, you know, I didn't know what I wanted to do out of college, but I hit on a, on a profession that has really captured my interest for, for over 35 years now. No, it's fantastic, and and I guess when we have you on a third time, we'll allow you to have a top ten list. I'm going to be. You, the, you I'm going to be the, your top ten list of the podcast. That's, I'm going to be the Steve Martin of your podcast, just like he was with that with <laughs> SNL. And life in the front office is the anti Sports Illustrated jinx. I'm I'm putting I'm putting yeah, some I, very uh, interest in uh, significant interest in the quakes in uh, in the soccer championship for MLS. Oh. Nice. Well, you, look, you never know with the new playoff format. Um, I think as our as our coach aptly said last year, I think everybody would have wanted to play us. Uh, this year, I think nobody would want to play us. I think doesn't mean you know even that, given how tight it is, doesn't mean we're going to make the playoffs. We've made incredible progress in terms of our identity and style of play, and I think we're dangerous. And I think in the current playoff format, the way that the league is going to run it this year for the first time, I think. Uh, being dangerous in a, in a one-game series is uh, a good place to be. Well, we appreciate you being on in the dynamic double. Uh, it's always entertaining <laughs> to have you on. And uh, we will uh, evermore be appreciative of what uh, you do in the world of sport. <laughs> Every every time we thank you, Tom. Every time. <laughs> yes. so, some some great old references today, Andy. You you outdid yourself, I have to say, going all the way back to Sesame Street and Yeah, well, next time, are... next time we could talk about your experiences playing Everton, but we'll end with that. <laughs> we'll get out of here for today. Thanks, thank thanks a lot, guys. Always a pleasure to be with you. I want to take the time to thank you for listening to Life in the Front Office. And if you liked our episode, please rate us on Apple Podcasts and leave a review. We greatly appreciate it. And for more episodes, visit us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on our website at lifeinthefrontoffice.com. And please continue to share uh, with your colleagues on social media and help us continue to grow. Thanks.